0: By now, you have likely seen the announcement by President Trump that the United States will formally recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and that the United States intends to move its embassy there from Tel Aviv. The move bucks decades of U.S. policy, which sought to include the status of Jerusalem as part of a broader peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. And virtually the entire world warned President Trump against this declaration, fearing that it will sow instability throughout the region and erect yet another obstacle in the way of an already failing peace process. On the line with me to discuss the implications of this announcement to both the Arab-Israeli peace process and to regional politics more broadly is Mark Lynch. Mark is professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University's Elliott School. He's also the director of the Project on Middle East Political Science and is one of my favorite Middle East analysts. Mark explains why previous U.S. administrations have held off on making this move. And he puts this decision by the Trump administration in the context of its broader policies towards the region. And here, Mark, I think very interestingly, lays out the high-stakes gamble that the Trump administration is making with this declaration. So this is obviously a very timely conversation. Big thank you to Mark for getting on the line with me literally moments after Donald Trump finished uh, his speech. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives. Also, I don't know how many of you know this, but we have a standalone mobile app. If you don't want to listen to the podcast on Stitcher or Spotify or iTunes, uh, just search for Global Dispatches in the App Store. I know uh, many of you already do, but you know, it's just another way of, of getting this content to you. As always, of course, feel free to reach out to me. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Love hearing from you guys. And please leave a review of the show on iTunes. It really does help increase the visibility of this podcast in the eyes of people who are searching for interesting content about global affairs. And now here is my conversation with Professor Mark Lynch. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Well, Jerusalem is obviously it's a contested space, and uh, the position has always been that it would be the subject of negotiations determined in the final status uh, agreement between the two sides and uh... jerusalem is of course a divided city and it's claimed as a capital by both israel and the palestinians and it's been you know kind of one of the major sources of contention uh... from the very start and it's also an issue of i think really deep resonance uh not just with israel and palestinians but with uh, muslims around the world and it's basically just one of those issues where uh the united states has always been very careful to leave it to the final status negotiations
0: like why is that like what was the the reasoning behind that
1: well after the capture of the West Bank in uh, the 1967 war, uh, you have the situation where uh, what had been uh, territory, which was uh, controlled by Jordan, uh, is captured by Israel. And there was a very strong uh, desire by the Israelis, of course, to have this become the uh, the unified capital of Israel. But uh, I'm that Jerusalem become the unified capital of Israel, but this was still land that was claimed by, uh, by the Palestinians and by, uh, at that time, Jordan. And so, you know, originally it was part of the general, um, you know, the, the general politics of the occupied territories. Then Israel established a special status for Jerusalem um, where they distinguished between Jerusalem and, uh, and the occupied Palestinian territories but that's something which, uh, of course, wasn't accepted by the Palestinians, and so that's continued then to be negotiated all the way through. And uh, in some ways, uh, recognizing uh, the, it, the this Jerusalem as the capital and moving an embassy is a major political concession uh, to the Israelis, um, and, uh, and at the same time, therefore, it's taking something important away from the Palestinians. And so the question is, really twofold. One is, you know, what is the status of Jerusalem and what it should be? And the other is, what does this do to the negotiations? If this essentially major concession has been made to one side, what does that do to the prospect of negotiations?
0: So on a conference call with, like, senior administration officials last night where they were previewing this this decision, you know, they made the point uh, and stressed the point that, you know, all President Trump is doing is just recognizing the reality on the ground that Israel, that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. He's just calling it as he sees it. And, you know, no big deal like what what is then like the big deal what's the argument uh, against that i mean and furthermore they said anyway it'll take us at least 6 years to move our our embassy to get all the security procedures in and in, in in place and and all that really they're kind of downplaying this as like a hugely significant move
1: well it it is significant to israel and the israelis and it's significant to the palestinians and it's significant to everyone in the arab and muslim world who's invested in the status of Jerusalem. And so I think that at one level, they're right in that it's largely symbolic, uh, especially because there's going to be this delay in the, uh, in the actual moving of the embassy. Um, so at, at that level, they're correct that it's just symbolic. Um, but the symbolism matters a lot because this is, again, something which is deeply resonant uh, kind of on both sides. And you, you, you could actually say on all sides, since it's not just the Palestinians who, who are in Invested in this um, and it's also you know one of those things where again when you get into the negotiating process as you know we've been for so many years um, this is one of the issues where trade-offs are going to be asked of one side or the other along with many other highly contested issues and so uh, you know, basically keeping that in the in the negotiations has always been something viewed as as, as very important. Um, and so this has been the status quo at the international level, not just the United States, uh, you know, holding. The, uh, the capital issue out and the Jerusalem issue out has basically been the consensus international position. And so, you know, you can say that this is simply reflecting the reality of how Israel currently, you know, practices its politics and practices its, its, its governance. Um, but you can't really minimize the symbolic consequences of this because everybody feels it pretty intensely.
0: Well, well, can I, can I push back on, on that uh, just, just a little bit? I mean, in general in life, like I'm not a cynic, um, but the, the cynical um, take on this is, is something that resonates with me in, in a way, which is that, you know, the, the peace process is, is dead. It's, 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 and you can't kill something that's already dead. Right. So moving, you know, this, this, this move of the, this declaration that Jerusalem is now Israel's capital by the United States will undermine a peace process that's like non-existent anyway. So, you know, again, like what's the big deal?
1: Well, if you frame it that way, you asked me why uh, Israel or why the United States thinks it's significant. You didn't ask me what I thought. Um, I, what do you think, I I, compl- I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I think the the peace process has been dead for 15 years uh, or more, and um, I think that there's really nothing to revive. You know, the um, the uh, Lebanese uh, satirist, uh, Carl Charo, had a great tweet uh, about this where he, he said something along the lines of, Oh, let's be careful not to disturb the peace process. You might wake it up.
0: <laughs> well, there you go. And, I mean, uh, yeah.
1: And and so it's so on, on that level, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think that the, the pretense that a peace process actually exists is a useful fiction for a number of actors. Traditionally, the United States has, has viewed it as important to uh, maintain the fiction of the existence of a peace process, because that's how it's able to maintain its alliance with Israel and with the Arab states uh, simultaneously. And you know, As long as you can show that you're trying to achieve peace, then they can justify that partnership. Um, so, so it was was always at least from my perspective um at least from 2000 onward when the formal peace process came to, really came to an end um you know, it's basically been more of a vehicle for you know providing a fig leaf for you know other regional alliances than it's had anything to do with actually trying to achieve peace and so you know from that point of view it doesn't worry me that much that uh, this idea that uh the move on Jerusalem is going to torpedo the peace process because there really is no peace process and there hasn't been for a very long time.
0: And, and it also seems to further erode the pretense that the U.S. can be any sort of broker of, of a peace deal or say in particular like Jared Kushner could be a, a broker of a peace deal.
1: Well, there's, there's two different ways to think about that, though. And I think that here's where, you know, we have to really recognize that the region is changing in all kinds of rapid and fundamental ways. And so the reason the peace process was always important was, as I said, because it provided that fig leaf. But maybe uh, what Trump has concluded and what other Arab leaders are signaling is that they don't need the fig leaf anymore. Maybe from that point of view, they're simply saying, we can we can align with Israel against Iran, with or without a peace process. It doesn't matter anymore. Uh, it's not a high priority for Arab publics. Um, you know the the threat from Iran is so great that uh, it over it outweighs. The, uh, the Palestinian issue. You know, so, so maybe that's the way you can think about it as it no longer being necessary uh, to maintain the fiction of a peace process. Now, but that's a test, though. And there's a lot of assumptions there that might turn out to be unwarranted. I mean, I think that anybody who follows regional politics has seen that uh, the Palestinian issue has really decreased in salience. Um, it's not something which dominates the headlines anymore. Um, most, uh, most, You know, people around the region, they're, you know, consumed with Syria, with Yemen, with uh, domestic politics, with, um, you know, all of these other issues. And the Palestinian issue has really dropped down, down down the kind of down the agenda. But at the same time, it's always there as a latent issue, which is really deeply felt by people all over the region. And, you know, when there is a crisis, when Israel has gone to war with Hamas, or when there's been the prospect of uh... of major protests in the west bank um, you suddenly see this issue shooting back up into the very top of the agenda it, it's always there it's always latent and uh, jerusalem is the most symbolic of all of those issues um, you know so it's not uh... you know when there's a war with gaza that taps into all of these regional divides about hamas and about islamism and all these other things but Jerusalem is something which is kind of at the heart of the Palestinian issue. And so, you know, we can see a test now of whether it's actually true that, uh, that this can be gotten away with. Um, you know, the initial signs are that, uh, you know, almost every uh, Arab regime and international organization in the region, you know, they're coming out, uh, you know, warning against the move, they're issuing statements, uh, you've seen these coming out of the OIC, you've seen it coming out of Gulf states, Egypt, Jordan, close American allies. And I think the tendency in Washington is to look at that and to say, they're just posturing, they don't really mean it, this is what they have to say, but they're not going to do anything. And, um, we'll find out if that's right.
0: So, so, yeah, well, well, it, it seems that, that, that we'll see, but I, I'm fascinated by how you contextualize this move in terms of the Trump administration's broader engagement with the Middle East. And, and you didn't say so by name, but I, I presume you're referring at least in part to like a tightening alliance between the United States and Saudi Arabia to, um, to counterbalance a- a- Iran. And, and I'm wondering sort of how you understand, um say the moves in in Saudi Arabia recently in in context of this decision by the Trump administration
1: but this is exactly the point is that the gamble here is that that uh, you can achieve or the United States can achieve its goal of, of bringing about a, a rapprochement between Saudi Arabia the gulf in general and um, And Israel, without having to solve the uh, the israeli palestinian conflict um, and you know if if that can be accomplished then from from that from their point of view this will be a major strategic advance um, and so one way to look at this is they 're testing the waters to see how far they can go um, and uh, you know it, in public, at least, uh, Saudi leaders and officials are coming out and they're saying, "No, we, we will never give up the Palestinians. We do care about this." Uh, you've seen the warnings by uh, General Assisi in uh, in Egypt. You're seeing um, you know this outpouring of of uh, criticism of the move and of support for Jerusalem on on Gulf social media. You know, so you're you're seeing all those kinds of signs. Um, but I think what the Trump administration is looking at is, you know, what happens a week from now or a month from now? It, does this simply pass? And then they get on with the business of containing Iran? Or does it turn into some kind of lasting um uh, serious damage to uh, US strategy and US interest and i think that uh, you know most people around the region probably are you know they probably come down on the side of saying that uh, trump's probably going to be right about this mm-hmm. that yeah, like uh, saudi that arabia public...
0: etc they'll, they'll they'll be willing to like sell out the palestinians to maintain their alliance with the united states to to counterbalance iran
1: exactly and that where public opinions are really emotionally invested in this issue, these are highly repressive governments that uh, have proven themselves willing and able to crack down on public criticism, and I think that the gamble would be that they can handle it.
0: What, what do you and think?
1: Well, I mean, I think in, around most of the region, that's probably true, that, um, you know, these, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring and the kind of the counter-revolution which followed, um, you know, there's been a systematic uh, uh, move across the region to kind of harden these states, to uh, cr- to clamp down on uh, challenges to authority, and to try and ensure that you don't see anything like 2011 again. And, uh, you know, so... Yeah, I think these regimes are they're scared of a renewed popular mobilization, but they they also seem to be fairly confident that they can handle it at least in the Gulf. Um, and uh, and in Egypt, uh, you know, there's obviously worries about this, um but again, they have so many issues of their own. Um I think the the most likely places where you would see serious problems would be uh would be Jordan and then in the Palestinian Authority. And, uh, you know, Jordan is always facing this kind of problem and, uh, you know, of, of, you know, domestic challenges and, um, you know, trying to navigate uh, its, uh, you know, it's uh, the views of its population and its alliance with the United States. And, uh, and, you know, the general sense there is that probably, you know, that this is built into the Jordanian system and Jordanian politics. They'll figure out a way to handle it. Mm-hmm. So you don't think it'll be like um,
0: destabilizing in any meaningful way for Jordan?
1: I mean, Jordan is always facing destabilization, and uh, most likely they'll be able to handle this too, unless, and this, so this is where it all kind of comes down to the fulcrum point, which is, what does this do to the Palestinian Authority? You know, if the Palestinian Authority um, collapses under this, if you see the eruption of an actual new intifada, sustained um, uh, protest and challenges to the PA and, and or to Israel— and that then, you know, goes on and turns into a serious, sustained uh, mobilization. That's going to be very, very difficult for uh, even these newly uh, authoritarian or these retrenched authoritarian regimes. It's going to be very difficult for them to ignore it. Um, you know, the, so they're going to be watching to see, you know, what happens. And I think that if, the, if on the Palestinian side, this kind of comes and goes uh, with a few protests and then everything carries on as before then um, that will be the bellwether for the rest of the region. Mm-hmm. That'll be their green light to, you know, they lodge their diplomatic protests and then move on. So, um,
0: well, it sounds but, but it's so, it it yeah.
1: striking, though. I was just going to say that it's pretty striking that if you look at the speech, uh, you know, Trump did signal that, uh, you know, he was still committed to the, a peace process. He still wanted to bring about a, a deal, which would be great for both sides. But uh, in terms of anything concrete, there was basically nothing for the Palestinians or the Arabs. Uh, You know, there there was nothing there which would compensate for this uh, move which was very favorable to the Israeli side. And so it's possible that they have something up their sleeve um, that, uh, that they're waiting to roll out, but there's been very little indication of what that might be. And so I think that... You know the sweet words aside. The gamble here is they can kind of do this, offer no real concessions, and get away with it.
0: And and so it seems then that the smart Palestinian play would be to foment that kind of um, you know popular anger and, and mobilization that might sort of awaken uh, that 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 might force perhaps um, allies and other Arab countries in the region to, um, you know, to to sort of condemn this action in more meaningful ways.
1: Yes, but that's risky, because the Palestinian Authority is utterly dependent upon uh, support from the the United States, from Israel, and from these same uh, Arab states. And so if it, you kind of, supports a policy such as an uprising in in Intifada, it's got two major risks that it's bringing on. One is that the anger will be directed against them for failing to uh, deliver anything in the peace process. So Abu Mazen and the uh, the Palestinian Authority have to fear that they would end up being the target rather than the beneficiary of a popular uprising. And the second problem is that even if uh, they are not targeted, and uh, they and they 're able to direct the challenge towards Israel. This could then lead them to lose those vital uh, support uh, uh, resources that they get from the United States, Israel, and uh, the Arab states um, and that could end up hurting them uh, you know from the outside so so basically, uh, you know the in terms of trying to extract some kind of concessions from Israel, yeah, that might be a smart play. Um, but, uh, when they're looking at what it might cost them, uh, it'd be pretty risky now. But the other part though, of course, is they might not be able to control it. I mean, the Palestinian authority is very unpopular, very weak. And, um, you know, it's struggling in all kinds of ways. And so I, I think that, um, it might not be under their control whether such an uprising emerges or not. They're simply going to have to, in many ways, see what happens themselves and then adapt to what's happening on the ground.
0: Um, is there any other like lens through which you think it might be useful to analyze this move, um, perhaps like pertinent to, to some of, some of your research?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that I think is the most interesting here is that you know, we, you know, everyone who studies the Middle East or who, uh, you know, works on the policy of the Middle East, we all have this set of assumptions uh, about how things work and what matters and who's relevant. And And I think that one of the things which is going on right now is that things are changing very, very fast. And a lot of the assumptions that we've had, they might still be true, but they might not. And I think we all, in a sense, are, you know, we need to be very rapidly updating Things. So, for example, when you see the way that uh, the the war in Syria has been fought, with uh, you know the role of Iran and, and pro Iranian Iranian backed militias, or the role of Russia in Syria, or looking at Hezbollah moving out of out of Lebanon into Syria, looking at Israel carrying out fairly regular airstrikes inside of Syrian territory, these are all things that uh, you know you really would not have seen in the past, and yet now they've just become. You know, part of the way the Syrian war is fought, or if you look at what Mohammed bin Salman is doing inside of Saudi Arabia and the challenges that he's uh, directing towards uh, the you know the members of the royal family um, and uh, you know the clerical establishment and uh, and all these other things, you know, these are really breaking through a lot of uh, uh, kind of longstanding uh, expectations and norms of political behavior things are changing really fast. And so something like this, like the moving of the embassy, we all assume that it's going to trigger, uh, you know, all these, you know, particular ramifications politically to the peace process to everything else, but maybe they won't. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, we're in a situation now where it's just not obvious that old red lines still matter. And it's not obvious that, uh, that kind of the old game is still what's being played.
0: Well- now well, it maybe, could be
1: that, yeah. that it could be that it is, and you know, in other words, it could be that Trump thinks that there's a new game in town, and he's about to get burned very badly.
0: Well, well, um, maybe then ultimately the um, recklessness of this decision is that you know it just we don't you know it, it's adding another degree of uncertainty into an already volatile region, the outcome of which we can't really predict.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I think that it is. It's, it's quite reckless. And, and it also, I mean, just to take a, taking a step back in the other direction, you know, it, it really is a provocation for no reason whatsoever. There was no strategic reason to do this. There was no political reason to do this. There was no evident pressure uh, to do this, I mean, it really just kind of came out of nowhere in in all kinds of ways, and uh, you know it, in one way, it even cut directly against uh, kushner 's efforts to build this uh ultimate deal and all of that sort of thing um, you know it just kind of seems to be this uh kind of policy decision which kind of came out of nowhere, didn't really seem to be carefully thought through, and was working at cross purposes with um, with other initiatives of by the Trump administration um, so and, and in that it, you know resembles like the uh, the mixed messages over the Saudi blockade of Qatar, uh, the mixed messages over Syria, you know the mixed messages over all kinds of issues, and so that I think is a is a really a notable part of it you know, there's just no sense of this being part of a clear or coherent strategy leading towards something. It just seems like something that Trump wanted to do a box that he wanted to check. And now he's done it. And now it's up to everyone else to kind of pick up the pieces and figure out how it all fits together.
0: And it's up up to you to explain to me and and everyone listening how to understand all this. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mark. As I mentioned at the outset, he is always one of my favorite explainers of the Middle East. And he was a guest on this very podcast where he had a longer conversation about his life and career and how he got interested in the Middle East in the first place. And you should definitely follow him on Twitter at Abu ArtFark. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.